Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. The problem with mo uh, modern days unipolarity is precisely that. The West is leading Ukraine down the primrose path. We don't have enough tanks, we don't have enough vessels, we don't have enough planes. To bring chip productions here to the US. I'm Andrew Collingwood. I write for Bornbrook magazine and other online outlets on geostrategy, economics and British politics. Hi, my name is Philip Pilkington. I'm a macroeconomist who spent nearly a decade working in investment management. Both of us believe that the world is undergoing a once-a-century geopolitical and macroeconomic shift. After decades of American leadership, the unipolar world is finally ending. Since World War II, America has set the terms of global trade, and it's backed these up with its control over international institutions and its enormous military power. But things are changing. China is still rising. Russia has reawakened. Europe, America's longtime partner, is in long-term decline. Each week, we'll be dissecting three stories that illustrate the shift, from how semiconductor shortages in Taiwan influence Japanese military spending, to how a new scramble for rare earth metals is remaking US foreign policy. We'll be talking about economics and geopolitics, but most importantly, we'll be talking about how they influence each other, how resource competition drives the great game of empires and alliances, and how that story is the great emerging tale of the 21st century. This is multipolarity charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up, Janet Yellen and Christine Lagarde have both made high-profile public comments this week. One of them is over the target. The other is Major Kong in Doctor Strangelove, clinging on to the bomb as it falls. Who is facing up to multipolarity? The Inflation Reduction Act is turning into America's big green protectionist machine. As the world turns back toward active industrial strategy, Joe Biden's signature piece of legislation is aiming to onshore high-tech jobs in clean energy. So will the sun shine on this $500 billion subsidy program, or is it all so much hot air? Huawei is about to build Brazil's 5G network. After the DC elite backed Lula over Bolsonaro, we're asking... Was it worth entrenching Beijing's allies just to stick it to the Donald? But first... Avant Lagarde. Philip, this week two of the grand ladies of global monetary and fiscal policy. One of them made an important speech in the United States and another one uh, had an interview in the US. Both of which had a great deal to say about the current geostrategic and economic situation in the world. I'm talking, of course, about Janet Yellen, the former chair of the Federal Reserve and currently the US Treasury Secretary within the Biden administration, a crucial post, who gave an interview to try to defend sanctions and one or two of Biden's uh, economic programs. And the second, of course, is uh, Christine Lagarde, uh, formerly the president of the IMF and currently president of the European Central Bank, who uh, went to the US and gave a very surprising and important speech about the uh, fracturing of the world into a multipolar world order and some of the implications of that. I think both Janet Yellen and Christine Lagarde are queens in their own domains. Both said some things that were very, very pertinent to 
what we talk about all the time, the rise of the multipolar world. The comparison ends there. Janet Yellen uh, made almost wholly defensive and negative comments, while Christine Lagarde kind of gave a bit of a barnstormer speech embracing what is becoming the new normal. So it's probably worth starting with Janet Yellen. She was asked on in a CNN interview with Fareed Zakaria, who actually, we should say, has been a bit of a uh, multipolar pusher of all the American journalists, especially on the on the more mainstream channels like CNN. Fareed Zakaria seems to be much more in tune with what's going on than almost anybody else. And he was interviewing Janet Yellen. And then at one point, he asked her straight up, do the sanctions And I think he especially thought of the seizure of the Russian reserve assets, but also the sanctions generally. He asked her, do they risk eroding the hegemony of the US dollar? I mean, he asked it like that as well. There was no pussyfooting around it. Yellen got extremely defensive. She'd said, yes, there was a risk of uh, undermining the hegemony of the US dollar. She then said, we're being judicious about what we're doing. She didn't really explain that. And then she kind of went straight to boilerplate, gave a kind of a very worn out defense of the sanctions, felt really out of date, you know, was saying uh, that the sanctions are grinding down Putin's war machine, not according to those leaked documents last week. And she also said that they brought down the oil prices. But of course, she's Treasury Secretary. She knows well that the oil prices have come down because especially the Western economies have slowed and may even tilt into recession. So it was a very interesting encounter. I thought it was interesting insofar as it kind of showed that the Treasury policy in the US, embodied in the person of Janet Yellen, seems to be constrained. I don't think that they have actually much choice over doing these policies. When Yellen was asked about it, she gave very, very minimum information on the actual economics of it and launched straight into kind of a borderline foreign policy tirade. And what that tells me is the foreign policy people are in control of the show when it comes to pretty much everything now to do with that kind of aspect of things. And the Treasury are just taking their uh, talking points. And if Yellen is asked about what actually is probably the most consequential question, not just of her tenure as Treasury Secretary, but probably of her career, and which could well end up being the thing that she's actually remembered for. When she's asked that question, she has to dust off months old talking points from the State Department and the Department of Defense and read them off. That's kind of where we are. And I think that in itself is revealing of the power pyramid as it currently stands in DC. Yeah, I mean, let's take uh, Janet Yellen's uh, speech first, and then we can move on to Christine Lagarde's. I, I found it astonishing that she claimed that the oil price cap as part of the sanctions suite that the US has attempted to impose on Russia had brought down the price of oil. If that's the case, why has the Biden administration been uh, selling off oil from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve like there's no tomorrow. The Strategic Petroleum Reserve is is now down to its lowest level since the early 1980s. And that's been in part an effort by the uh, U.S. government, the U.S. Uh, presidential administration, to lower the oil price. <laughs> so if sanctions are working so well, why was that even necessary? I think beyond that, though, one of the interesting things about Yellen's speech is when you and I first started kind of communicating, when we first 
got in touch, as it were, via Twitter. I think one of the reasons was that both of us were extremely skeptical about the ability of sanctions to achieve what President Biden promised that they would achieve way back in February and March 2022. And I think both of us argued separately and started commenting on each other's tweets that these would actually have quite significant long-term detrimental effects on the West. So I think both of us said, like, look, if you expel Russia from SWIFT, then not only Russia is going to start building its own equivalent of SWIFT, but other countries are going to realize that their ability to use such an interbank transaction system are also under threat if they go through a U.S. control or U.S. European control system. So they'll start building their own too. And indeed, Russia was expelled from SWIFT. And lo and behold, we've had an explosion of trade deals, bilateral trade deals, which are now conducted in local currencies instead of the dollar, and also use local interbank settlement systems. The the biggest one of those, of course, is uh, SIPS, C-I-P-S, which is the Chinese equivalent of uh, SWIFT, but there are others as well. Equally, we said if the US freezes, you know, essentially expropriates the Russian reserves, which are held within the US banking system, other countries are going to view their reserves, those reserves which they hold in dollars and which are kept within US jurisdiction as under risk. They're they're going to realize that, look, these pretty good thing to hold at the moment, but if ever we have a foreign policy dispute with the US, then Washington can always just do the same with us. And of course, we said that the natural and normal response to that kind of overweening power by the US Treasury Department. And we must remember it is the US Treasury Department, which has got an extraordinarily effective research and sanctioning unit, which goes through the the international financial system, finding ways to impose these sanctions. So it is Janet Yellen's department. We said if if they were overweening in their power like this, there would be blowback. And that's, of course, what we're seeing. And I think that's the root cause of Janet Yellen's defensiveness. She, as Treasury Secretary, had to do something. I, I call this do somethingism. It's a disease that afflicts, it seems, politicians on both sides of the Atlantic, where something happens that they don't like in the world and they feel that they have to do something, whether or not that something is good or bad or it's going to have negative consequences. They must do something. So I think the US administration was afflicted with do somethingism. They were desperate to deal a blow uh, to Russia, to weaken it, to potentially knock it out of the ranks of the great powers. So they did something, irrespective of the blowback that's going to have. Russia's economy didn't crumble, as Biden said. The ruble didn't become rubble, as Biden said. And in fact, the economy declined only 2% last year, which for an emerging economy isn't a great deal. And the ruble, it's about where it was before February 2022. And I think this is the root cause of Yellen's defensiveness, not only of sanctions being a bit of a curate egg in terms of their effectiveness, but they also have had exactly the sort of blowback that, to be fair, not just you and I, but a lot of people said they would have. Yeah, I think there's a kind of a sequencing issue here. I think that the Treasury Department bought in fully 
on the sanctions when they imposed them. I think they gave Joe Biden those very strange estimates, which, among other things, didn't use PPP-adjusted GDP even to discuss how large the Russian economy is, which is really basic stuff. They gave him those talking points. They were from the Treasury because they were specifically economic talking points written by economists. They all believed them then. I mean, they really did. Um, And in fairness, I think they sold it sold many people on them. And because there was some initial instability in the ruble, they thought they'd won the game. That cannot be the case now. I I think everybody knows that the sanctions have been a failure. I think there's still a debate around how much damage they'll do in terms of how much damage they'll do to US dollar hegemony, how much they'll undermine Western trade and so on, how much they'll ruin the European economy with high energy prices. That debate is still open, but but the question of whether they worked or not isn't. So I can only assume that Yellen, being a PhD in economics, who's married to, I believe, a Nobel Prize winner, knows this. I mean, you can't assume that she doesn't, and you can't assume that the Treasury don't understand it now either. So they're in pure defensive crouch position, it seems to me, and they're defending a monumental policy, probably going to be, as I said, the policy that will be best remembered not just for the the Treasury Department, probably for the Biden administration itself. And they have to to defend this, as I said, with with talking points that feel months out of date. It was an interesting interview. It was was interesting to see it put to Yellen in such stark terms. Um, Hats off to Farid Zakaria for doing that. It's good journalism. But yeah, I mean, it was was a little... um, it was a little depressing, really. How does this uh, conflict with the other great dame of international uh, monetary and financial policy, uh, Madame Lagarde? Uh, she was a lot more proactive in her speech, I would say. Well, yeah, I mean, Lagarde was was Lagarde took the bull by the horns. You know, apparently the Europeans are are far better able to stomach what's going on. Maybe they have better analysis as well. I actually am starting to think that they have better analysis. It's not just a question of temperament at the moment. Yeah, it was a really, really sophisticated speech. I, I almost found myself wondering, reading some of it, if she's a fan of, a fan of the show. If so, Lagarde, uh, like and subscribe. I mean, she went through everything, really. She, she discussed the evidence that, that new currencies were being used in trade, which we've often discussed, that we were seeing an increased accumulation of gold as an alternative for reserve asset, which I believe we discussed. Um, also, uh, attempts to create alternatives to SWIFT, which she seemed to be indicating were working. The interesting thing about her speech was she wasn't just highlighting this. She was highlighting it and not particularly trying to shoot it down. She was highlighting it as as these are points of fact. And the entire timber of the speech was the world is changing, the world is fragmenting, and that this is just what's happening. We have to deal with it, which I think is very much where we come at it on the podcast here. She also even said multipolar or multipolarity, I think twice, maybe three times. I think the European institutions have become very, very savvy to this. So the, the end of the speech really stood out to me where she said that uh, fragmentation, paraphrasing Ernest Hemingway, happens in two ways, gradually and then suddenly. I think that's that's the impression we've had trying to cover these developments in the past few weeks, that they really are happening very, very suddenly. You're, you're almost waiting for this gradual, long process 
that you can kind of comment on week to week and then boom, something will drop. You know, Farid Zakaria even, you know, drops that on Yellen and she has to defend it. I mean, stuff like that. It's 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 picking up pace, it's really speeding up. So I thought the 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 contrasting um speech and the interview were really interesting. I mean, it's pretty clear who's stuck in the past there to me. And it's pretty clear to me who's planning for the future. I think part of that contrast that you have referred to is perhaps because the entire reason that the that Washington imposed sanctions on Russia was part of something that I've come to increasingly see as an obsession or a crusade among a certain set which has perhaps is a minority I don't know but certainly has a great deal of power within the US foreign policy community it's been an obsession, really, a, a kind of an anti-Russian obsession. And I think it fits in very well with the neoconservative or liberal interventionist view, which has been for the last 25 years on a kind of messianic mission to remake the entire world in the image of the United States, this idea that the world would be a far safer place for everybody. It would be a far better place for everybody. But it would be a far safer place, and especially for the U.S., if everybody was democratic, it was liberal, uh, was into free trade and uh, open markets and uh, liberalized national economies. And we saw the results of that in terms of the war in uh, Iraq and, 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 and then in Libya and Syria. And we're seeing the results of that now in Ukraine as well, which has also been one of their keystone projects for several years and i think these sanctions were very much a part of that to really um to to really go at the uh, at the current government in russia and the current political system in russia as well and perhaps that's one of the reasons why they feel like they're clinging on the other point of course is that the us really has been the focal point of what has been for the last 30 years since 1989 or at least 1991 a unipolar world order with the united states as the only great power within the system so they don't only have this kind of obsessional crusade if you like from the neoconservative liberal interventionist side of things but they also have their own position as the sole great power within a unipolar world system to protect and they are starting to look increasingly desperate to protect her. You mentioned just how defensive Yellen was in the face of quite obvious evidence that the sanctions haven't worked. And I think that that is true over a range of, of matters, economically and in terms of international relations. Whereas the Europeans are feeling the effects of the shift to a multipolar world order from a unipolar world order in a far more immediate and visceral way. They are directly affected by what's happening between Russia and Washington. Europe is essentially caught in the middle. They essentially find themselves trapped between a, a great proxy war between their a key supplier of energy and raw materials for especially for the the manufacturing powerhouse in uh, centered on germany but also reaching out into poland into the czech republic into the netherlands into eastern france as well and northern italy as well they're trapped between a war between 
the key supplier of raw materials for that economic system and the guarantor of their security. You know, the US on one side and, and Russia on the other. So they're feeling this shift to a multipolar world order far more viscerally. And of course, on the after all of this, after all of the economic damage that's done, after all of the readjustment that's done, I mean, Europe to me has dealt reasonably well so far, despite it having clear and obvious deleterious effect. On the horizon now, they can see another great battle <laughs> coming between the US and China. And China is obviously uh, Europe's key and most most important and biggest export market by uh, or not export market but trade partner full stop so i think for the europeans this is a far more visceral matter they're experiencing this change immediately they're being hit by the wave the first so of course that's causing them to think right what can we do to to adjust to this new reality? What changes can we make? How are we going to have to start viewing the world and dealing with the world? And at the same time, they don't have this kind of monstrously hubristic international relations ideology from the neoconservative and liberal interventionists that the US have, and they don't have their own place within the unipolar order to defend. At the Greenwash. It certainly seems like America's on the back foot at the moment, but one area that they are making progress in seems to be industrial policy. The Financial Times had a report this week about assessing the impact that the Inflation Reduction Act that actually got Europe very angry recently is actually having. $200 billion worth of investment is being invested, it claims, due to these this industrial policy. Now, I think we should pump the brakes a little bit on that. I couldn't determine what the methodology the Financial Times was using is. I went and I looked at year-to-year increases in manufacturing investment. And in the past few years, that's ranged anywhere from about $130 billion to over $400 billion. So a $200 billion increase since the IRA uh, wouldn't be you know, stu- statistically significant. So I can only assume that the FT are being careful here. They're sifting through the companies that are doing the investment, and they're making sure that those specific deals are IRA-backed deals. But ultimately, from a from a, a statistician or an economics point of view, we'll want to see how much higher manufacturing investment uh, grows uh, this year than it does in a typical year. With that said, we'll take the FT report at face value. Two hundred billion is quite quite a lot. As I said, that would actually clock in at kind of a mid range of what the annual, the entire annual increase in uh, manufacturing investment typically is. To say something about the IRA itself, it's 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 a it's a kind of system of tax credits, grants, and loans to get these companies investing and to get more manufacturing built in America. The thing that stands out very very immediately is the composition of it. To say that the IRA is tilted in the direction of clean energy would be a vast understatement. In total, there are $369 billion worth of tax credits, grants, and loans for clean energy development. The other two components of the acts are the CHIPS Act, the Semiconductors Act. We can talk more about that later. That provides $39 billion, so about 
10% of what's, what's provided to the clean energy sector. And then the other component is just for general manufacturing, which is $24 billion. So that's, you know, 7% or something of what was provided for clean energy. So I think there's a lot that can be said about this. But but one thing that I really think needs to be highlighted is that whatever people think about clean energy, the days of the green lobby in DC being a few hippies from Greenpeace is long gone. The green lobbying industry in America are absolutely enormous. And they seem to be able to stick their funnel into anything and draw blood. And if that allocation to the clean tech industry isn't actually the best way of increasing American manufacturing, which I don't think it is, there could be a lot of very bad investments made there. And I'd just be concerned as a supporter of industrial policy that that level of politicization and investing in experimental technologies is a very, very bad idea if you're trying to pursue a broader and credible industrial policy. But we can actually, we can go into the details. I know quite a bit about why that is. So we, we I'd like to get your take on it and, and maybe we can go a little bit more into the details of both the semiconductors component of it and the general lobbying effort, which I, I know quite a bit about. I think the first thing that's interesting about this is that Yet again, it's another extension of Donald Trump's intentions and Donald Trump's instincts when it came to the policy uh, he wished to pursue for America. So in the same way that the Biden administration has continued and even, well, not even, and quite obviously extended the diplomatic conflict with China, so it's also making an, an, an attempt to bring manufacturing jobs home, which is something else that Donald Trump wanted to do and indeed won on. So yet again, we're seeing a change of president and a, and, and a quite significant change of style and certainly a, a change in the way that the, the main US papers of record report on such things. But we're seeing pretty much an extension of the same policy or at least the policy intention made into reality. The second thing I would say about this is that this is far more like the sort of thing that the US should be doing if it wants to take on and compete with China and if it wants to bring back manufacturing jobs and uh, and bring back some of the the high-quality blue-collar work to America from the countries in Southeast Asia, which it has been outsourcing them to for the better part of 20 years, certainly since uh, China acceded to the WTO. This is what they should be doing, something constructive, uh, uh, an effort to foster high-quality manufacturing in the United States, an effort to invest in research and development to help manufacturing gain competitive advantages in the United States, not just pulling up the drawbridge, not engaging in punitive tariffs on countries that they don't like or countries that are outcompeting them. No, try to improve themselves and outcompete themselves. The way that Southeast Asia has done so well out of globalization is they've looked at ideas like Ricardian competitive advantage. And what they've looked at is, is said, not just what do we have a competitive advantage in now, but what 
could we have a competitive advantage in? And they've invested very heavily in those things. They've made some failed investments. They've been very clever in terms of injecting competition into their marketplaces at just the right time. They've forced through mergers to get rid of uncompetitive companies that have, 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 have built up. And on the whole, they've built economies of scale in key sectors like car manufacturing, like capital goods, like even things like clothes and, and, and apparel manufacturing at the lower end of the system. And by doing that, they've, they've, they've made great hay out of globalization and, and, and the free trade system that they've got. What America needed to do, rather than, as I say, stick a whole bunch of punitive tariffs on countries, start trade wars, and generally pull up the drawbridge, is be much more constructive. So I think this is a, a positive sign that perhaps America gets that end of it at least. So generally, I, I think like you, I'm in favor of industrial policy when it's well-targeted, when it's well-considered, when it's well-thought-through, like it has been in a lot of the Southeast Asian countries like the places like Taiwan, Singapore, Korea, Japan, which have all had their problems with overinvestment. They've all had certain issues with this process, but in general, it's been positive for their economies. And I see no reason why European countries and uh, North American countries can't do the same. And I think this is a nice step toward that. I totally agree with you. We've been very critical of trade war. It's not going to do us any favor. We're the weaker player in that trade war, and we will end up losing in terms of, uh, well, in every term, really. The only way that the Western developed economies are going to be able to compete in this world are by something like industrial policy. But sadly, I think we should take wins where we can get it. The, the Biden policy is definitely better than nothing, but it's highlighting some of the key issues that um, maybe not Europe will have, although we can talk about Europe in a moment, but definitely America is going to have if they go down this route. So I'd advise that anybody who's very interested in this topic and sees it for actually one of the most important economic topics, definitely the most important economic policy topics uh, around today, um, should go and, and track down an article called uh, Where the Chips Fell in American Affairs by my friend Julius Krein, the editor. He observed very closely the passing of the CHIPS Act, which is what provided the $39 billion in semiconductor subsidies. A few things stand out in Krein's article that I think are worth considering, especially for supporters of industrial policy, but also for kind of realists who want to get a sense of what's the probability that this could work. Krein pointed out that there is no lobby for industrial policy per se. I mean, there are groups, but they have no power. The only way that anything gets done in DC is through the the, the highly paid, high, flush with corporate profits, corporate lobbying arm. And that pretty much dominates these policies in DC almost completely. And the reason that the CHIPS Act got passed ultimately was because the Semiconductors Industry Association, it's called, got firmly behind it. But as Crown tells it, they had no vision for a broader industrial policy. They didn't want to team up with others. They didn't want anything. They just wanted their piece of the pie. And part of that is because they focus all of their money and energy on increasing their bottom line. 
because that's how lobbying works in DC. It really is quite bad if people don't understand it. But the the second reason is teaming up with others to lobby in DC. Often uh, companies see this as a threat because they have their own, as they say, verticals, you know, vertically integrated businesses. And they think if the other guy gets some subsidy, he might actually end up poaching on your on your uh, preserve might end up taking something from your vertical and putting it into his. And that's not a completely unrealistic assessment on the part of the lobbyists. But I think both of those things show what a cutthroat game it is in DC and how dominated it is by money. And not only does that mean that a broad industrial policy of the sort that Western countries need is going to be extremely hard to achieve, but it also means that the outcomes of these policies will probably be highly suboptimal because they won't really be determined on what the best strategic sectors are, on what the best sectors to build up initially, anything. They won't be chosen on that basis. They'll be chosen on the basis of contingency and who's got the most money and who's got a slightly better narrative than the other guy. And that, I think, is why most of the the Biden IRA went to the green technologies. They are extremely well-funded. They are extremely well-politically connected. And they have a story to tell. I mean, it's got so bad, frankly, now that it's called greenwashing. It's got its own term. That you sell a business pitch, that you get in money that maybe shouldn't be invested in your company, and then you greenwash it all. You say, well, I'm I'm holy. You know, it's for the good of the planet. I'm a, you know, I'm a holy figure. And that really is... is starting to happen with the green industry even supporters of renewable energy and so on need to take off their rose tinted glasses at this stage this has become a big industry and my fear in europe is that europe isn't as inclined toward these slightly corrupt lobbying efforts i I wouldn't say corrupt because it's perfectly legal but you know what i mean corrupting if you want lobbying efforts where everyone's trying to grab a piece of the pie and plowing money into lobbyists to get that piece of the pie europe doesn't really suffer from that and nor does the uk really But what they will get, I think, the same is the Green Lobby. I think the Green Lobby will try and gobble up huge amounts of this pie. And in in Europe especially now, because they're experiencing an energy crisis, I think that any industrial policy that will be pursued will end up being massive subsidies to the Green Lobby. And maybe some of those things will produce great technologies. Maybe some of them will produce great companies. But that kind of single-minded focus, because this is a highly lucrative politically well-connected and frankly fashionable industry, it's not going to have the kind of outcomes that we need. And if we had the luxury of another 25 years before the multipolar world took off, we might be fine. We might be able to take the licks and learn the lessons, but we don't have time anymore. We don't have time. And if we get a couple of bad cycles of poorly done industrial policy going into solar panels that aren't needed or solar panel companies just can't stand up in the marketplace, which we've seen before, by the way, in America, if you want to look up a company called Cylindra, which went bankrupt after a subsidy and became a huge political football for the Obama administration. If we go in that direction, it not only might it discredit future attempts at industrial policy, but we may be 10 years down the line or 15 years down the line when we've realized it hasn't worked. And at that point, it might be game over. Yeah, I think you're right about lobbying in the US. It's something I first became aware of years ago, maybe 15, 20 years ago, even when I uh, watched a documentary called Casino Jack and the United States of Money. 
I'm not sure if you've seen that film, but it's about a very famous US political lobbyist called Jack Abramoff and uh, his efforts to transform the way uh, political contact worked on uh, on Capitol Hill into who had the most money, essentially, and putting himself at the center of that. And he ended up going to prison and very shady stuff. But lobbying in the US has been, is a, a far as, as you know, and as listeners know, I try to avoid US domestic politics, but it seems from afar that it's a huge issue. And it's one of those issues that is going to become even more extreme as the U.S. tries to follow an industrial policy because um, picking winners and losers, I mean, not necessarily companies, but uh, broad sectors that you might want to attack. You know, South Korea looked at things like the car industry and uh, monitors, both for TV and and, uh, computers, and it looked at mobile phones. You know, if the U.S. tried to do an equivalent of that, it would be like the Royal Rumble of lobbying efforts. There would be billions of dollars of lobbying money spent. it would really be, uh, it, would, it would probably be a, like a scene from The Merchant of Venice in some ways. So I think, you know, I think that is going to be a huge problem. And it gets back to things that we've discussed before. For instance, one of the points that we made about the Silicon Valley buyout is that it reeked of the sort of thing that the IMF would rail against when going into emerging markets to bail out you know their economies from currency crises or debt crises or liquidity crises or banking crises one of the things that they would always find is there would always be uh, politically connected chiballs or oligarchs or whatever they were who the government because of those political connections the government would really try to protect from the consequences of the economic austerity that would have to be enforced to bring the economy back onto an even keel and provide a strong foundation for future growth. And the government would always try to protect these, and the IMF would really try to force them um, to let these well-connected entities or individuals feel the full uh, pain of the economic adjustment. And one of the points that we made about Silicon Valley Bank and the bailout there is that you saw something very similar happen. The U.S. federal government decided that a, a highly influential, highly connected group, i.e. venture capitalists and and uh, Silicon Valley high-tech business, was spared the pay uh, caused by the Federal Reserve increasing interest rates, even as the rest of the country felt that pain. And, uh, you know, I think lobbying could... Uh, be a very similar instance of that kind of, I hesitate to call it outright corruption, really. No, it's not. But maybe you could call it something like a corruption of the system itself, where uh, systems get entrenched and a little bit old, and you get these cozy relationships, or, which are perhaps corruption adjacent, shall we be uh, delicate and diplomatic and call it that. And I, I think that is going to be a problem as the U.S. tries to reacquaint itself with the with the art of industrial policy, even though I think we both agree that that industrial policy is going to be uh, crucial, if the U.S. and 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 the broader West indeed is going to survive in a multipolar world against countries which have been doing this for a great many years, have got highly competent bureaucrats working on it, and you know have pretty sharp elbows in the field. Uh, international economic competition she gets a brazilian the president of brazil best known as uh, as lula uh, rather as the uh, brazilian football players and owned by names like pele and ronaldo 
Uh, the, the president of Brazil has gone down the same route and is known as Lula, and he's been on a four-day visit to China. Now, to give listeners a little bit of background, um, since Lula's been elected, he has really been very active in two areas. The first is improving cooperation, uh, economic cooperation, social cooperation, and, and uh, diplomatic cooperation between countries within South America. And to that end, apparently the Brazilian and Argentine uh, governments are in discussions of some sort, not necessarily urgent ones, but discussions about having perhaps a shared currency or perhaps a, a, at the very least a shared unit of trade. So that's one of the areas he's looking at is, is kind of intra Intra-South America, he's really focused on is what he calls South-South cooperation. So it's essentially cooperation between countries within the global South themselves and, uh, and trying to build up a um, trading system, you know, organizations of economic and diplomatic cooperation um, without going through those which are Western controlled. So to that end, Lula is very keen on the BRICS, for example. He's, he, he always has been since the beginning. The BRICS, of course, being um, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, a group of countries that share, or, or, or shared at least, less so now, fairly similar uh, economic and uh, demographic uh, metrics. Um, but as part of that, he very recently, he agreed to start conducting bilateral trade between Brazil and China in Yuan. And to that end, uh, gave the Chinese license to open up a clearinghouse within Brazil, which would facilitate the monetary transfers for set trade. So anyway, hot on the heels of all of this, hot on the heels of his uh, his efforts to increase South-South cooperation. He spent a four-day visit um, to China and specifically Beijing, where he met Xi. He was uh, he was met with great fanfare by um, by the Chinese, and in the end, he signed fifteen agreements with China, which included uh, cooperation in areas like industrial investment and uh, trade and. Um, and even rural development, and in fact, they even signed an agreement to build a uh, for Brazil a cutting edge uh, environmental satellite, which is going to cost a hundred million dollars, and I guess the Chinese are going to build and launch. So, really, a, a, a pretty important visit. Yet more evidence of the direction that uh, President Lula wants to take Brazil, and I think this is going to be over the next few years of. Uh, Lula's presidency, one of the key vectors for the development of uh, a multipolar world order. I think one of the most interesting things about Lula's second presidency is the how the tone around him has changed. I recall when Lula was first elected, nearly 10 years ago now, and I just start working in financial markets, and I remember everybody panicking. Lula was seen as a far leftist. There really was fears that he was going to be a Hugo Chavez type figure who would frankly destroy the Brazilian economy. That was the buzz that was going around. I remember I looked into Lula and I said, I don't think he's a Hugo Chavez figure. But in saying that, I could kind of see where people got the idea. I mean, just to give one a couple of examples in recent times. In 2019, while he was in prison on alleged corruption charges, um, he penned an open letter against the then incumbent Bolsonaro administration, which I suppose would, would be a typical thing for an opposition leader to do. But it was against US sanctions on Venezuela. And he wrote in the letter, we can't 
cannot allow Brazil to submit to the United States. We cannot turn Brazil over to imperialism. Now, those are quite strong words. Lula has always positioned himself as a very far left leader. He hasn't governed like Chavez, but he is very left wing. And his whole conception of the world is an anti-imperialist Marxist conception of Latin American struggles against the hegemon to the north. I also think the lore at the moment is that Lula, or at least the people around him or his supporters, partially blame the US for his imprisonment. I don't know the details of it, but that's what seems to be going around. So all of this, I was very surprised during the election between him and Bolsonaro recently that the US, DC, kind of lined up behind Lula. I wouldn't say it was particularly formal, but I think it was pretty obvious to anybody watching that Bolsonaro was was seen as a kind of devilish Trump figure, even though he was the more US-aligned candidate. And the more liberal element in DC charged behind Lula. And I wonder now, I mean, we're seeing all these things take place and, and Lula being one of the more aggressive leaders in the, um, in the attempt to multipolarize the world. And I wonder if there's not a bit of buyer's remorse in DC. Was it really worth dicking it to the Trump figure because he was a little brash or whatever, and ending up with somebody who was so much opposed to your policies. I'm not saying that Bolsonaro wouldn't have gone along with much of the BRICS plus development. Look, that's a that's a deep decision on the part of the Brazilian state, and I'm not convinced that any singular leader could turn that around. But, you know, on the balance, if you're America, you probably want the candidate who at least is not going to charge into the room in terms of those type of policies. I, I do wonder what the Americans are now thinking, seeing world develop as it has, and Lula become such a central figure in trends that can only be described as moving against them. I think that the Brazilian presidential election and the stance of the U.S. coastal elites, the people who write New York Times opinion editorials and write in the Washington Post, but also work for think tanks and what I loosely call the the Manhattan charity auction set, perhaps an unki- a little bit unkindly, I think that they're stance within the Brazilian presidential election is a perfect encapsulation of where U.S. foreign policy has gone wrong, and also a nice encapsulation of the solipsism and perhaps parochialism as well of some U.S. policymakers. So first of all, you know, you have this, as we mentioned earlier in this episode, this kind of zealous, perhaps, you know, real hubristic mission of the neoconservatives and, and, and uh, liberal interventionists to, to try to remake the, the rest of the world in America's image. And of course, Bolsonaro was the uh, kind of a 21st century version of the Cold War archetype of the of the kind of pro-US, you know, military strongman that the US used to support in South America regularly during the Cold War. On the other hand, Lula was the 21st century version of the the opposite archetype of the kind of the pinko kind of soft socialist, perhaps communist sympathetic that the US would often panic about and have removed before he started uh, making links with the Soviet Union. Now, in that election, though, 
first of all, the U.S. couldn't get over this kind of zealous, almost religious fanaticism that the rest of the world should be a kind of a liberal democracy. And, and Lula fitted much better with that than kind of Bolsonaro with his, his, his authoritarian tendencies and his, his perhaps slightly oafish ways, ways in which he communicated sometimes. But also it spoke to the parochialism and solipsism of Americans. They, they, they really tend to struggle policymakers in my view to see the world through anything other than the prism of their own political pathologies so in the same way that Boris Johnson despite the fact that he's a liberal very and you know has a very similar political outlook to Joe Biden because he was a key figure in Brexit was associated with Donald Trump in America Equally, Bolsonaro was associated with Trump, and they could not bring themselves, despite the fact that Bolsonaro was clearly going to be better for America than Lula. I'm not saying Bolsonaro was going to be to cleave himself closely to America and be America's best friend in South America, but he's clearly and obviously going to be better for America than, than, than Lula is. But they couldn't bring themselves to actually do that. And the reason is that this, this, this kind of messianic, you know, almost religious view of foreign policy and the, and, and the way that you know morality and piety should drive it rather than cold security calculations, but also their own solipsism and parochialism and being unable to see beyond their own political pathologies. And you know what we're seeing with Lula now signing these fourteen or fifteen agreements with China on a whole range of areas, but also doing things like visiting the Huawei factory. Listeners will probably remember, I mean, we've spoke about the chip ban, but the, the kind of the forerunner of the chip ban, the canary in the coal mine, if you like, or the, or the test case, was America trying to devastate Huawei when it was clear that they were doing fantastically in the mobile phone market, and they were way ahead of US and European competition on 5G technology. So the US tried to put a block on that by you know, trying to force all of their allies not to use 5G and, 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 and having sanctions against Huawei on, on things like chips for mobile handsets. And here's Lula visiting the factory. And in fact, Huawei is going to, as far as I understand, build out Brazil's 5G network. Now that'll lock in Brazil's telecommunications for decades to the Chinese technology and the Chinese tech stack. So it's a, it's a fine example of where US foreign policy has gone wrong, in my view, by taking a kind of a moralistic view rather than calculating quite coolly or coldly and objectively based on security and strategic concerns. The only thing I could add to that is the the religious or moral analogy. I don't th think it even fits in this regard. Just to remind everybody, in the Nine Years' War, the Holy Roman Empire and the Vatican sided with the Protestants in the, in the Dutch Republic and England against the French, who were, who were then ruled by Louis XIV, who is known to be one of France's most devoted Catholic kings. In the past, even religious leaders could distinguish these boundaries. So whatever is going on in DC is, seems to me a more powerful force than even religion. We are fresh from a huge victory.